Hello and welcome to Paincast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Today we are honoured to have Corey Choma joining us. Corey has been in clinical practice since 1996 and is a founding member of CSA. He is one of the only four clinical specialists in pain science in Canada and one of a handful of people awarded an honorary fellowship at the Institute for the Study and Treatment of Pain. Corey has been teaching Gun IMS domestically and internationally since 2003 and is a senior instructor for the Continuing Professional Development Branch of the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Corey is one of the contributing authors for the chapter on Gun IMS in the text Trigger Point Dry Needling, an evidenced and clinical-based approach. In this episode, we talked about how pain education can be simplified, how the body and the mind affect one another, and how the biopsychosocial model can be harmonized and manifested. Enjoy! Hi, Corey. Thank you so much for joining me on Paincast. How are you doing today? Doing really well. It's a good day. Thanks for asking. That's amazing. To start off our conversation, please introduce who you are, what you do, and what a typical week looks like for you. Um, so my name is Corey Chom. I'm a physical therapist in Alberta. You know, I work in a private practice environment with a large organization, and I do consultations for clinics all around my region, regardless of, you know, who owns them or what clinical group they're in. With respect to the finer details of who I am and what I do, if I can just state for a couple of seconds what my educational history is, I think it helps out a lot of people. So I did a degree in science with a chemistry major and a biology zoology minor. And that kind of informs the way I look at human systems, both from the point of view of basic physiology, but also of chemical interactions and impacts of behavior on chemicals that are in our body. After that, I did my physio degree. So like all of us physios, we consider ourselves the movement people. And then a bunch of years uh, later into my career, I did a clinical specialization with CPA in pain science. And so again, that would kind of inform the listener that I look at I look at everything from a pain science point of view as well. And with respect to what do I do? I, I suppose that I treat persistent symptoms and recalcitrant concussions. Those would be kind of the two broadest categories of people that I see. And then a significant amount of my focus is on kind of um, bringing up issues to get a person thinking about their optimum health span, as opposed to kind of what we do typically in medicine, which is talk about lifespan. And I think if people spend more time thinking about how well they're living, then a lot of things like persistent symptoms or persistent pain uh, tend to fall in line a little bit better. So that's kind of what I do. I think my main tools, I, I do a dry needling technique called gun IMS, and I teach that out of um, UBC. And so that, that's a treatment for a type of neuropathy, a partial denervation, supersensitivity. And then um, obviously I use a tremendous amount of pain science in my life. And I use these tools in pursuit of function as a primary goal or landing spot for my client. Kind of with respect to what a typical week looks like for me, that's changed a little bit since COVID um, for the better, I think. 
but I think it took something like COVID for me to reevaluate where I was putting my time. So these days I do clinical practice between eight and one uh, during the day, two days a week, I do virtual care only so that I can extend my reach to people outside of my geographic area. And then the other three days I do clinical work inside of CSA physiotherapy. And in the afternoons of each of those days, I, I typically exercise as soon as I'm done with work. And then I work on a chronic pain kind of booklet and program that I've created called Pain Made Easy. So that kind of takes up the rest of my time. And then after that, I'm a happy dad of two little girls. So I sit with my family, with my wife and my six and nine-year-old, and we have a lot of fun. And I coach track and field, uh, pole vault in particular at the University of Alberta. So that kind of rounds out what I do in my day and my week. Wow. I didn't know you were also a track coach by pole vaulting. Were you an athlete yourself? Yeah, I got interested in pole vault in high school, which was in the mid to late 80s. And I competed on the varsity team at the University of Alberta while I was doing my physio degree. Ended up being the captain of the team and had a lot of success with my teammates. And it was just kind of a natural progression for me to continue in in coaching. So I've taken a, a bit of a subordinate role in that because I'm so busy right now. And some of the people that I've trained are now are now kind of my leaders. And I just kind of come in and try to provide as much guidance whenever I'm available. Mm, that's cool. It's very nice to keep up a, you know, a hobby and a passion. Um, yeah. So you summarized your physiotherapy approach and philosophy really well about how you're looking at really the pain science of it and also using gun IMS to treat the biological side yeah. of things. What got you passionate and interested about pain science at the beginning? Yeah, I think that I always say to people the, the same thing I said in my interview to get into physical therapy when they asked me why I was interested in physio. I've always been the kind of kid that was interested in a puzzle. So, you know, I went, when Rubik's Cube, <laughs> when they first came out, I was actually still in junior high. So <laughs> that was a long time ago. But when that came out, it was really captivating for me and my group of friends. And we had a little club within our junior high to see who could do them, the, who could do the cube the fastest. And I've been very interested in all those kind of mechanical puzzles that stretch your brain to think of uh, something that, you know, in a three-dimensional way. And so I kind of I think that love of puzzles brought me into physio. I didn't want to go into something, um, I'll just kind of say like orthopedic surgery. If you're going to do a total knee or a total hip, you do a procedure and then you repeat that procedure many, many times. And I wanted something that was going to be a bit, a bit more of a lifelong challenge. And so when I had talked to a physical therapist that was treating me, he was like, if you have that sort of an attitude, you really want to go into something like rehab med. And so I was interested in rehab med. I looked at occupational therapy. I looked at speech and I looked at physio. And then of course, physio is where I ended up. And here I am, I think I'm somewhere around 27 years into my career and every day is a mystery. Every day is a new challenge. My wife bugs me about how much academic information I take in. I don't really, I, I don't really read pleasure books the same way. I think most people do for me, the science is pleasure. And yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what got me here. Wow. That's amazing. I share that uh, really because I think, totally also agree that physio is a very exciting journey in that you're solving problems and solving very meaningful problems and I similar to you I find myself reading a lot of you know physiotherapy related articles and books um, and obviously doing pain cast one of my favorite things to do and 
<laughs> it's great to be exposed to new information. And the nice thing about physio is that we treat human beings and they're awake when we treat them, which means we have to pay attention to their nuances and their personality and their preferences. And that makes a simple clinical practice guideline have a tremendous amount of breadth and depth and diversity simply because of the personality. And that's, the, that's one of the things that I like the most about what I do is the therapeutic relationship. Absolutely. It plays such an important role in how effective the treatment is. It's not only really only about the science, but also how we interact with the patient. Absolutely. So currently in the private practice context, a lot of patients do come in because they have pain. Yeah. In your practice, do you treat a lot of people with acute pain or subacute pain or chronic pain? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I treat uh, inflammatory pain, maybe ever, um, like true kind of acute inflammatory pain. I suppose I treat a lot of recurrent chronic episodes. I don't love calling them acute on chronic, simply because these particular episodes don't have an inflammatory contrib contributor. So I, I do that with some of my patients that kind of um, have have gotten better function out of what I've done and then come back to me to kind of solve problems that are similar or occasionally to resolve the same problem. Um, so I do, you know, I started out kind of a Travell and Simons myofascial trigger point guy. And so I still do a lot of those techniques. Gun IMS kind of adds more depth to that. So those clients, I would say, make up about, I think, maybe 35 to 40% of my clientele. And then concussions are growing right now in my caseload and a lot of very complex concussions that have a lot of uh, psychosocial issues and contributors that I have to address. And that would be a, probably another third, let's say. And then what, what some people would call chronic pain would be the other third. I don't love that term, but that's what, that's what people will call it. That's the diagnostic classification. What do you like to call it? Persistent symptoms. Yeah. Why is that your preference? I think that the it's a problem in the world, right? Like we invent words and the words oftentimes, you know, we invent them because they're the best description that we have of that kind of client cohort at the time. But then our scientific knowledge increases, our ability to test things increases, our use of outcome measures increases. And then at the same time, you know, the news media takes certain terms and starts to publish articles that informs the public about them. And I think that the the information that comes out ends up being biased in a way that's different than the way it was originally intended. And so right now in the world, um, when patients come to me and they use the term chronic pain, it's almost like they've been given a gut shot. They've been given some sort of a life sentence of horror. And so I like to distance myself from the symptoms that that the client brings in with a load. Um, like I don't want it to be a loaded shotgun for them. I have a lot of clients that we talk about chronic pain or we'll talk about different classifications of pain. Um, but generally speaking, I, I start by using the term persistent symptoms because it, it is what they are. And then when it says persistent, I think that kind of opens the gateway in their brain for a positive outlook toward function and maybe it maybe allows hope Whereas when they hear the term chronic pain, not that individually those words don't mean the exact same thing, but I think socially they mean something different. And, and I don't love what that means for a lot of people. So I avoid the term. When people come to you saying that they have 
chronic pain, how many of them have already gone through other treatments for the pain? I don't think I get any patients that haven't done a significant amount of other treatments. Kind of the the role I seem to play regionally is I seem to be the person that people send their clients to when they fail more conventional methods. And I like it that way, actually, because a lot of people say, well, I don't want them to come in with a certain bias. Well, I want them to try stuff. I want them to come in and have failure because if they have failure, then they're going to be more willing to listen to someone that maybe has a slightly different perspective. And one of the first things I'll say when they use the word fail is, is I, I see fail as an acronym and the acronym would be the first attempt in learning. I look a lot into the positive psychology of things and I try to I try to identify a fixed mindset and provide enough information that perhaps that mindset would switch to a growth mindset. And a lot of the literature and a lot of the books that I read and the podcasts that I listen to and view are in psychology. I just find that stuff unendingly fascinating. And so one of the strategies you provide them with that switch in mindset is to say, maybe you have persistent symptoms rather than continuing using the label chronic pain, which carries with it all of the baggage of their history, their past treatments that was not successful and whatnot. That's right. And if you have the baggage that's associated with negativity, the easiest way to change it into positivity is just to use a different term. And then mm -hmm. I get to define what the current history of that term's use is. Before we get into talking more about, you know, your system, your thoughts on approaching these patients with persistent symptoms, what do they typically have gone through? What are the typical strategies for treatment within the chronic pain world? I'd like to answer that more broadly and just say within the therapy world. Because when we say chronic pain world, you know, I did a talk at Congress this year where one of the main points of that was... The, the terms we use are not agreed upon. If someone works within a pain program or they have a pain intervention or, you know, you know any, any number of different terms, it means different things to different people. An interventional radiologist would look at a pain program in a completely different way than a rehabilitation professional like myself. So if I think about that more globally, um, I'll tell you what typically comes in my door um, when I ask them what their past medical history is and what kind of things they've tried, they'll claim that they've tried everything. And by that, they mean they've tried physio, they've tried chiro, they've done lots of massage, maybe they've done acupuncture, maybe they've done, you know, homeopathy, they've oftentimes done medial branch blocks, plus or minus an actual radio frequency neurotomy. Um, they'll say they've gone to psych, they've say they've tried antidepressants, like they've really thrown the whole gamut at it. And the unfortunate thing I find is that when people try one thing and it doesn't work, they think that that entire class cannot work for them. So if I've tried physio and physio didn't work, what's the use of trying physio again? It's already not worked. And so I like to really unpack that with them and to discuss and dis discuss what exactly about that therapy did work and what exactly about that therapy didn't work. And again, that's part of my mindset shift where instead of concentrating on the things that didn't work, I think that everybody can talk about the things that did work in their therapy, and we can use that as a more solid groundwork to progress where we want to head toward uh, their goals or the return to function. So these patients come to you with a lot of history with different healthcare professionals. What are the common problems you've seen among, let's say, the therapy world for chronic pain that has failed these patients? Yeah, this is uh, 
this is a, a real irritant for me. I think that we've we've been in this world of understanding that there is a thing called the biopsychosocial model for decades now, like decades. And what I still see right now is a lot of people concentrating on a single treatment to be functional for people that are in you know chronic pain or persistent symptoms. Uh, I see a lot of people concentrating on the diagnosis instead of the individual. You know, to be honest, that that really bothers me actually because number one, the diagnosis can be incorrect, and number two, uh, giving a person a diagnosis doesn't really tell us how to treat them, even if it does have a clinical practice guideline, because ultimately they're an individual. And in the world of pain, the only person that has a front row seat to the experience is the patient. So we can't really treat them with a single treatment or or as if they have and embody a diagnosis. So I think a lot of people are in the private practice are a little bit apprehensive about pain. So to a certain extent, they ignore some of the symptoms and they treat the things that they believe they can have a positive impact on, which I think is fine. I think that you can treat the things that you think you're good at. But if there are other things at play, then I think you need to refer out. And so that's my message. My message is if your person has really bad nightmares and you're not going to treat them for them, then perhaps you should be referring to OT. That's what I do. We have three OTs that work in the clinic I'm at. So I think people should refer out for the things that they're not doing well at. And I think that a lot of physios also panic when, when they get a really complicated case coming in. I think they panic because they don't know where to start. And I think that the therapist feels the same thing as the client. They feel hopeless and they don't feel that they have a plan. And what happens, I think, a bit too often is that the therapist will double down on the techniques that have worked in the past without considering the client-specific and lived experience or that client-specific desires beyond pain relief. Like pain relief is something that I don't believe I provide pain relief. I think that it sometimes is a, a consequence of what we do, but that's not my direct target. So, you know, I, I really look at things from the function of their biologic system, the function of their mental health and the, the function of their social network. And for those who it's appropriate, the function of their, you know, spiritual involvement. And so for me, it's always about function. And I think that the world of private practice physio and private practice chiro and massage and everybody else really could, you know, take a page out of that book and understand. I have a very successful business friend. And one of the first lessons he ever taught me was do what you do best and hire out the rest. And I use that statement and I say, do what you do best and refer out the rest. And that an individual therapist is only as good as the team of therapists around them that they can call upon when the client presents something that they're unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. So what do you do best? What do I do best? I think that my therapeutic alliance is pretty darn strong, I got to tell you. I think that I can relate to people. I think that I help them calm themselves over the condition. I think I help people normalize what's going on. And I think that along with the learning tools that I've put together, I think that I provide them um, more concrete answers that are tilted toward progress. And I think that what I do well with those people is distill down the positive psychological aspects and motivational aspects of where they want to be, rather than concentrating on a, a negative test, or um, what they would consider a negative, which is when the x-ray said there was nothing wrong. 
And you'll hear so many people in pain that they'll get a special test like an MRI or a CT. And when it doesn't point to anything wrong, they're absolutely gutted because they wanted something wrong. And, you know, so I think I'm good at, at helping them see it a slightly different viewpoint. Mm, that's very important. And for sure, like those people who are in pain, just trying to find an answer for their pain and having that answer is just for some reason, very relieving. Yeah, I think, you know, if, if we can expand on that ever so slightly, one of the things I do is I teach my clients about, I, I always say it's like a, a metronome, a music metronome, you know, this ball that goes back and forth, back and forth. In my language, when it's on the left, it's on the side of the sympathetic nervous system, which to them, I would say that's the fight or flight part of you. Um, that's also the threat part. So your body is always trying to assess when it's under threat. And when it's under threat, it's going to create a, a bio and a neurochemical environment that is called fight or flight. And then when you flip to the other side, that's more um, the challenge side or the growth side or the parasympathetic side. And so each time they come in and we talk about certain things, I'll ask them what side of that they feel they're on. Because when you're on the fight or flight side, your body purposely diminishes the blood flow to portions of your body that are not required. Um, and that includes parts of your brain with, with respect to executive function. Um, your body will remove away the resources to put it into the resources it believes are most important to survive that threat. So I think this answers that kind of that question or observation from therapists that a lot of people that have um, unhealing concussions or persistent symptoms, which we might call chronic pain, that they don't remember the lessons. They don't seem to be able to uh, think in a linear way. And they're, you know, they're always kind of ruminating or magnifying or feeling helpless. And I'm like, well, you know, you would too, if you were constantly in a state of stress and duress, because when you're in that state, you're only looking at the singular and finite path forward. If a bear is chasing you, you need to know how to get away from the bear. You don't need to sit there and think about your grocery list. When it comes to the observation that patients find it relieving to have an answer, relieving to have a diagnosis given to them, yep. how do you approach for patients who don't have this answer, don't have a diagnosis, and we you know, really don't know what is going on? Well, then it's very easy for me to say, while, while the medical community is trying to find more answers, while your doctor is getting more, uh, refer more referrals for you or doing more diagnostic tests, what we should do is we should make good use of our time right now and try to peel away some of the problems within your goals. And then if you were my patient, I would say, you know, like Tiffany, you said to me, it's a little bit hard for you to study more than 45 minutes and you're in a very intense program. So maybe we should talk about trying to return your body to some of those functions or make some of those functions easier for you as, you know, the rest of the medical community as a whole tries to find an accurate diagnosis for you. So it's really redirecting them back to function, back to their goals. Yeah, it's it's I think when people follow me around, it probably becomes a, a little bit tiring for them. But the client, they're in there for the first or second or third time. And I think people find that very comforting because then it provides them the opportunity to choose a goal that they can actually impact rather than waiting for someone else to impact it passively by a, an MRI or by a diagnosis, both of which in the world of the clients we see actually rarely add anything of therapeutic value. Right. And to be honest, once you have a label or once you have an answer to possibly why your pain is your pain, 
that doesn't impact therefore your pain or your function. Yeah. And worse so, Tiffany, I think I have this big rant I don't want to do right now, but um, when we're talking about a diagnosis or a clinical practice guideline, I understand how I would use those. But I think too often people, um, as soon as they have a diagnosis and as soon as they have, that would be on maybe on the client side or or on the practitioner side. And as soon as there is a clinical practice guideline, then they their brain gets switched into autopilot and they stop responding to the desires of the client. So for me, at assessment, Uh, the first thing I ask them is to write me a list in priority level of the functions that they want to return to. And then on the opposite side of that page, I ask them to list for me the skills that they have to attain that. And that's oftentimes how I start my treatment. Mm. How long did you take to evolve your practice to where it is today? Yeah, as long as I've been out, I mean, You know, one of my very first clinical mentors was an an MSK physio and a teacher in that area named Charlie Kelly, but he had a very, very broad view of what pain meant to clients. And interestingly, he was legally blind. And so when he would mentor me, he really taught me how to listen better and to, to feel more than just what I'm seeing. He used to always say that. And when, when he would say, what do you feel? And I would I would reflexly say what I'm seeing. He would then turn the lights out and he would say, welcome to my world. So uh, I think I started on day one and I was really, really fortunate to be with a guy like Charlie. And then from then, you know, I've worked in uh, radiology centers. I've worked in dental practices. I've worked at a doctor's office. I worked in a psychology clinic. um, And then I've worked obviously a lot of time in traditional physical therapy outpatient clinics and at a hospital. So I, I don't think it's ever stopped. I think I think it's been evolving continually. And I think it will stop until I'm mentally incapable. Or sorry, yeah. it will continue until I'm mentally incapable. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you mentioned a little bit how you start your assessment. You ask your patients to write down a list of functional goals in priority. Is yep. that a part of uh, what you have talked about? Um, your pain made easy pain curriculum is that a part of it yeah that's actually sheet five so sheet five is called the 50 10 rule i also find that people um it helps their helplessness by showing them a path forward and so i give them a rule right away and the 50 10 rule simply stated is 50 percent is the amount you should change a situation if it's ramping up your symptoms and 10 percent is the amount you should add to those things that you're doing towards your functional goals when things are going well and I think that uh, takes people off of that roller coaster of doing everything, then nothing and everything, then nothing. If you just give them the 50-10 rule, that helps them smooth out the waters. And then the two inventories that I talked about are on the bottom of that sheet. So it's actually sheet five because my pain science education typically precedes it kind of in the way you would think that things rationally would proceed. But I often start with asking them to do that inventory so that I can make things more Um, client specific as I go through. Right. Before we dive into the details of your Pain Made Easy booklet, how would you summarize what Pain Made Easy is? Pain Made Easy is really a set of educational tools that makes the presentation of modern pain science simplified. So I often call myself the Coles Notes of Pain Rehab or the Coles Notes of Modern Pain Science. 
I've often said as well that I think a lot of people that have pain programs present very complex information. I refer that to be like master's and PhD level. And I say pain made easy is more junior high level. But at the end of the day, it's a series of 10 educational sheets that will help the client understand what's going on. And sheet number five is an action sheet. Sheet number 10 is an action sheet. And so we're always moving linearly toward a return to function. So that's really what pain made easy is. So pain made easy with that, you're really trying to address the presentation of pain science to our clients and simplify it in a way that's easy to understand. Yeah, yeah. Make it a reader's digest level. How does pain made easy address the complexity of pain science presentation different from other pain science education? It just really simplifies it. You know, I used with very good success some other programs uh, like the Pain Truth, and I've used stuff from from Noy, from Butler and Mosley, and I've worked within radiology clinics. And I think what ends up happening in a lot of these situations is there's a, a large amount of information that's given to a client. And again, we have to remember that at the outset of therapy, they're really stuck in this fight or flight side on the autonomic nervous system. And part of being on that side is catastrophic thinking, kinesophobia, rumination, magnification. And when you're in that mindset, I don't think it's a good idea to give people copious amounts of information. So the sheets that I have, um, I, I think they look ridiculously simple. Um, and I think that other pain programs sometimes, I think, present too much information to the client and, and get them stuck. So really, that's kind of the main goal of it is, is to not concentrate on the complexity. I would never say to a client as a start that your problem is very tough and it's very complex. I would say, I think what we need to do is to create a very simple path forward that is easy for you to follow and helps you get where you want to go, simply. How do patients respond to that statement? Because obviously they've gone through so many different professionals and treatments and have not worked with them. I mean, we always talk about the patients that do well with our system. So, I mean, I had one lady that was on long-term disability that said she was 68 years old. She said, if I had met you 10 years ago, I would have never been stupid enough to stop working because stopping working was what she thought she had to do. But of course, she didn't realize how much meaning in her life work gave her. I've had many, many, many people angrily say to me, why have I never heard this before? Mm -hmm. To which my answer is, if you've done chronic pain programs, you have heard it before, but each time we present the information, you learn it in more and more depth. So again, I think that the starting of that education for people should be in its most simplistic terms. And if it solves their problem, then they're done. And if it doesn't solve their problem, then they can go on to more multidisciplinary programs that might take a deeper dive into, let's say, motivation or a deeper dive into depression or a deeper dive into anxiety. But in my presentation of it, I want to make it simple so that I can keep them on the ride that I'm on rather than going zigzagging through a crazy forest and losing them at the first turn. So the goal of Pain Made Easy, so it is a set of educational tools to provide pain science education, simplified. Yep. But the goal of it for each particular patient, it's really to reach their functional goals. Is that correct? Correct. How does this educational 
tool be used or individualized in a way to meet patient-specific goals? Well, why don't you give me a specific functional goal for a client, and then I'll use that as an opportunity to answer the question. Okay. Um, want to be able to work out without back pain. Perfect. Uh, one of the physios in my place had a 20-plus year WCB case. Um, not just with her for 20 years, but the, the case of this injury had gone on past 20 years. And she was working out in the gym for 45 minutes, and she would go home in terrible pain. And so the I, I have sheet number eight for me is a graded and paced return to function activity schedule, which you can do as it's listed, if it's very developmental, or you can use the skeletal framework of it to plug in your own exercises. So what this therapist that works for me, her name is Tanya, what Tanya had recommended for her client, that instead of doing her exercise the way she had it organized, she would do it in accordance to this activity planner. And the lady came back, Tanya wrote me a, like a two page, it seemed that way on a text, a two pager on what this lady said. She was absolutely enthralled. She says, I don't know what the heck just happened, but I just worked out as fully as I could. And I came away, not only not feeling pain, but in fact, feeling amazing. What happened? And then that brought um, Tanya into the conversation of pacing and grading. Another thing that I can give you an example of is if a person says, um, I'll give you someone from yesterday. So if the person says, um, I can't do the dishes because uh, it causes pain, I would say to them, how long into doing dishes do you feel pain and exactly what do you feel? So one of my sheets is also a hierarchy of symptoms where tension and lost range of motion is a lower level symptom and dull pain and sharp pain is a higher level symptom. Higher level symptoms are what I call above the green line and symptoms that are below that are called below the green line. So the person would say, well, I get sharp pain at 18 minutes. And I would say, do you get anything before that sharp pain? What do you feel at 17 minutes or 16 or 15? And maybe they'll say dull pain. And I say, before that dull pain starts, what do you feel? Perhaps they're going to say tension. So then I use this symptom hierarchy to inform them how to pace and grade the activity based on the presenting symptoms. And with the knowledge that if they can create the change that their body's looking for when it's at tension, it'll keep them out of that sympathetic response. Then they can say, I would say to them, why don't you do 12 minutes? And regardless of how good you feel, take a 20 minute break and go do something else and then come back to it. So again, I would use that function and their understanding of the educational sheet, in this case, my symptom progression, to give them what is required to do pacing and grading by themselves. So these are principles people can follow to yeah. reach their functional goals, basically. Yeah, yeah. there's not a single sheet in there that isn't something that, you know, experienced physios are all going to know. Like some of the experienced physios that have taken their course, they said, Corey, you didn't teach me a single new thing, but I will use these education sheets for the rest of my career because it's it's the patients understand it better than when I was telling them what I thought was the exact same thing. I'm thinking maybe it would be helpful for our audience if you can just briefly walk through the 10 sheets. We've mentioned a couple here and there, but to visualize it in full, what are the 10 sheets? Yeah, I can do that pretty quickly. So sheet number one is uh, a pain scale that adds function called the DVPRS. And this was created by the Defense and Veterans Group in the United States. So that's just a pain scale like all the other ones we've seen, except it also adds 
text at the bottom, allowing people to link that pain score to an emotion and also to a function. So the title of that is let's make sure we're speaking the same language. Sheet number two, the title is how the body heals movement is medicine. I introduced to them the concept that we're going to be working on in order to return to function, you have to be able to move. So I provide a very, very simple way of viewing that if you have no blood flow in an area, i.e. when you're doing nothing, your body will feel more pain. And if you can increase the amount of blood flow, whether it be through activity or even heat or anything like that, like laughter, that you will allow your body to distribute the chemicals that will start to make you feel better. Sheet number three is the one we just talked about. This is my symptom progression. The title of it is, these are the general feelings that your body uses to warn you. And I tell people that each of these feelings that they think are unrelated are actually related in a certain hierarchy. And they're related in that your body is using each of these to try to entice you to action. If you're enticed to action, those symptoms will go down if they're the right action for you. And if you decide not to act, then your body will increase the volume of that message. The same way if I whispered to you to, to look at me in our Zoom and you didn't, then of course I would say it louder. So the body's just doing something that it naturally should do. The next sheet is a pacing and grading sheet in a sense. It says how to avoid pain when moving. It's all about grading. This picture is a half of a circle where on the left is a lack of movement and on the right is tissue strain or tissue overload. And it shows that if you do too little and do too much, the graph becomes dark and is associated with your symptoms. But in everybody's life, if you look somewhere in the middle, there will be a white slice of pie. I call that the range of less discomfort. Um, in the world of trauma therapy, they would call this kind of your arousal capacity and you know the window of tolerance. So this is kind of the same idea. And I tell people that, you know, as much as you can, you want to stay in that zone of less discomfort, but constantly push the values on the side toward the poles so that you would then have more activity. The next sheet is the exact same one, except it shows the positive impact of challenging themselves toward their goals. And in the next one, that window of that range of less discomfort is twice as big. So it shows a person that we're going to be able to start regaining function. Sheet number five is the 50-10 rule. That's the one we went through. 50% is the amount you should change something if it's increasing your symptoms. And 10% is the amount you can increase what you're doing if you find that it decreases your symptoms or at least does not increase them. And then there's the inventory thing on the bottom, the flare identification inventory on the left and a self-treatment inventory on the right. Sheet number six is the seesaw rule. And this just talks about uh, symptoms and self-treatments. I think a lot of people, when they're thinking about an acute paradigm, they would say a level one sprain, you'll limp for a little bit, a level two sprain, you'll limp a lot, a level three sprain, you'll be on crutches and a fracture, you're not even using your foot. So people tend to have the conception that there's a linear relationship between what you're doing about the thing and what the thing is. In the world of pain, I think that's inversely proportional. As your symptoms go up, your level of involvement in things that could flare, it should go down but it should never go to zero. So on this one, there's a teeter-totter in the middle. And on one side, there's a scale of zero to 10, which are your symptoms or what you feel. And on the other side is the self-treatment you're using or what you do. And the teeter-totter is in the middle. So when one side goes up, the other side goes down and vice versa. So that just the main point of that is that symptoms inform your action. The next sheet is called the benefits of activity and exercise. This goes through uh, three different levels of heart rate and states what the biochemistry at play is. 
So level one X of activity, which could be therapy, it could be heat, it could be laughter, it could be walking, and your body will produce a bunch of chemicals that are outlined here. But the tagline is that your body produces chemicals you can consider to be miracle grow for your brain and your nerves. So my concussion people, we try to get in this area on a regular basis. Level two would be moderate activity or maybe a gentle activity plan. And this will increase what's already been done through level one, but now provide chemicals for tissue healing, pain relief, and relaxation. And then there's another third level, but I don't actually go through that a lot with people because I find too many people overdo it. So I usually typically stop after level two until they're ready. Sheet number eight for me, the title is Developing Skills Can Reduce Your Pills. And it's a simple graphic that shows pills, which oftentimes perpetuate ills. That's my tagline. So that would be, you know, side effects of a pill. And that can decrease over time um, if your physician or your pharmacist agrees. And in proportion to that, we increase your autonomy through skill acquisition so that at the start of therapy, you might be using pills as your main tool. And that can slide over toward using skills to control your symptoms leading toward independence. And again, it says in there that changes in prescription medication should only be altered under the direct supervision of your physician. And so that's sheet number eight. Sheet number nine is the activity program I talked to you about. So I call this my activity reset plan. And the tagline on the bottom of that is walk away wanting more. And that's to get people to stop pushing themselves into either tissue or kind of psychological overload. And it just shows them a very, very simple way to organize things in circuits where they're not really doing anything on a single body part repetitively. And when people do this simple one, this simple one in particular seeks to kind of refocus the homunculus and get people better able to do a body scan and better able to be in the present moment. So we, you maybe want to call that mindfulness, paying attention to what you're paying attention to, I think is a useful term for that. So this re reset activity plan is useful for that. And then the final sheet is a panic plan, your flare routine. Uh, the tagline at the bottom says this flare will pass and doing these things will speed it along. The backside of that page is uh, three different columns that say, when I experience blank, I will. And that provides us the opportunity to fill that sheet out on the basis of the client-specific strategies that have worked throughout therapy. And they go home with that so that uh, whenever those symptoms come back, they can work on those things themselves rather than feeling they have to come back to a practitioner or to you know go back to a medication necessarily. So those are the tenets of the program, Tiffany. Wow, thank you for walking through that. That's really, really comprehensive. I am very interested in knowing how usually you go through the 10 sheets. Do you go through like five in the first session? Are yeah. you really good at de developing therapeutic alliance? Like, do you spend most time developing that first and then go through the booklet? How do you go about the booklet? Well, first of all, the booklet contains all 10 pages, but when a person takes the course, they're given PDFs for all pages, because I would say I use all 10 pages on about 20% of my clients. I would say I use the first five pages on 40 to 45% of my clients and the rest of the people, it depends on which lesson they need. Mm -hmm. So we've only just put it in a book form in the last three months for the last several years it's just been individual PDFs that you give people. But when I'm teaching courses, people like the order that I do them in. And so we've got this booklet as kind of, I always call it a skeletal framework, right? Because we're physios. So this is the framework you can use. But if a person doesn't care about their pain and they don't talk about their pain, you don't need sheet one. 
or if the person already knows a lot about physiology, you don't need sheet two. But most people, if they're going to show up on my table, they're going to need sheet five. They're almost always going to need sheet three. And then I find a lot of people, when they go down that medication route, and they're really angry with their medications, and they tell me the number one goal they want to is to be able to live with less medication. And then we go straight to that sheet that says, what are the biochemical consequences of elevating your heart rate? Now, I should really quickly say this sheet is, or sorry, this booklet's called the Foundations of Function. There are three more booklets. One of them is specifically for chronic pain, where the lessons are distinctly different than this book. The next book to come out is the Concussion Book. It's about 90% done. And it has similar learning tools, but it's made specifically for concussion. So the, the book that you have that I gave you at Congress didn't have a title yet. The title of that booklet's now called The Foundations of Function. The second book, which um, we just rolled out the beta version of it today, was the concussion booklet. The chronic pain booklet is about 60% done. And the pelvic pain booklet uh, requires me to meet someone in chronic pain that uh, I have a good a good alliance with so that they can help me with that. Mm. Okay. How would the chronic pain booklet differ from foundation of function booklet? Yeah, that one's obviously going to take a much larger piece of the psychological determinants and the sociologic determinants of pain and talk a lot more about mindset and a lot more about how the mind controls the body. Whereas this one, it starts with the concept that the body controls the mind, which it does. It, they're both control mechanisms that go bilaterally. When people come in and purely are thinking MSK, I want to meet them where they sit. And so the foundations of functions meets them with the concept that things they do with their body affect their emotion. And then as they get into sheet five and they start writing down all of the things that bother them, a clinical picture will arise. If that clinical picture, like a, an orthopedic rounds that I did a couple of days ago, um, the, the important points were a certain medication had the best benefit and that medication was an SSRI and an SNRI. So that clearly was dealing with chemicals that affect emotion, in particular anxiety and depression. And that person also said that working with a personal trainer was the one of the best things that had helped them. So then I bring in the biochemistry of activity and the impact of their medication. This person's had chronic pain for 25 years. And then I start talking about the interplay in the chronic pain book between your mindset and your expectation and the way that you kind of view things and how it affects your body. So, I mean, a lesson that would be second nature to you, I think, Tiffany, was that if you're really catastrophic and kinesiophobic, then anytime you do those things, it's going to thrust your body into fight or flight. When your body's in fight or flight, it's expecting damage. So it increases the amount of circulating inflammatory chemicals in your body. And part of what those chemicals do is increase uh, nociceptive inputs and sensitivity. So that's the problem is that that inflammation can cause chronic depression, but the depression and the anxiety bolsters chronic inflammation. And so a person might come in on the chronic pain side and say that their antidepressant really helped them as a powerful analgesic. And so that's an opportunity for me to blend those two concepts, which the mind controls the body and the body controls the mind, but bring it back into, we really, we really only have one nervous system. So it's not shocking to me that the brain controls the body and that the body also influences the mind. That, that's not shocking to me. That allows us to look at the client as an individual, as opposed to, you know, diagnostic classifications or nervous system classifications.
Yeah. When someone says to me that this is a, a problem in the peripheral nervous system, I like to immediately say, which informs the central nervous system. Or if a person says to me, well, this is really a problem with the central nervous system, I say, which will immediately influence the sensitivity and activity of the peripheral nervous system. So let's just talk about a nervous system as a whole, because the client doesn't come to me in segments. Okay. Does that hit so, you okay? <laughs> uh, light bulbs going up. Uh... <laughs> for, for the foundations of function booklet, there's an emphasis to getting your activities in, getting the light activity, moderate activity to oh. boost the blood flow because that will help deliver the right chemicals to the area that you need. But you're oh. also mentioning, you know, for some clients, exercising actually triggers anxiety and they're expecting to be painful after they finish oh. an exercise. Maybe you can walk me through like a client coming in, they know exercise is good, but they're expecting to be painful after. Or Hypnesophobia, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the pasting graded activity sheet that I have, the activities there, Tiffany, are standing against a wall, practicing posture for 10 seconds, then walking away from the wall to hold that posture while doing single foot balance, assistance if required, and then up to eight, one quarter or one sixteenth squats. Like we're not talking a tremendous amount of activity. If people can do that, that's where they start. If they can't do that, then what I'll let people know is that I used my Apple watch to see what my heart rate was in a hot bath and my heart rate went up to 116. 116 on the benefits of activity and exercise sheets nestles a guy my age right comfortably into level two. So if you heat up your body, your body's heart rate will go into the area of level one. So on that sheet for level one light activity, the examples are laughter, heat, and therapy. And that therapy, I don't put physical therapy because that could be psychotherapy. It's anything that's going to take the person away from fight or flight. And that's what I was alluding to with sheet number five, is that when you take that inventory from the client, you're going to get the pattern out of those two inventories that are at play with the client. If the person's really kinesiophobic, all of their strategies are going to be absolutely not doing any activity. So then you go right after kinesiophobia and you start to figure out how you can unpack that. So for me, if a person came in with like, you know, 33 on the TSK, and they had also mentioned to me that heat helps, but it doesn't get rid of their pain. I would say, well, you know, what method of heat are you using? If they say I'm using a hot pack, I'd say, that's great. Um, have you taken a hot shower or have you taken a hot bath? And then we'll do a mini experiment. Can you do that? And we will compare, using the education of the other sheets, the impact of that hot bath as compared to just using a hot pack on their low back. And then, depending on how the result of that experiment goes, um, I'll let them know that maybe their heart rate is increasing. And by doing something that makes them feel more comfortable, they're taking their body out of that sympathetic fight or flight and moving them into the parasympathetic or the challenge side which is the way I, I talk about it. But the other point I want to make, Tiffany, is when you actually go through this sheet number seven, this benefits of activity and exercise, the things that are created in your body and distributed in level one are serotonin, tryptophan. Like tryptophan is kind of an important precursor to dopamine. Norepinephrine, actually dopamine is increased. So when you engage in any of these things, whether it be heat therapy or laughter, or in our world, when we're talking about more chronic pain, being grateful, 
being helpful to other people, taking care of yourself, going to church if church is what you do, going to mosque if mosque is what you do. Each of these things will increase the body's production of those chemicals. Um, this sheet is just a starting point to get them thinking by allowing them to think about something that they can easily understand. As opposed to if we walk right into um, something that is maybe more on the psychology side, and I'm clearly not a psychologist, then I think I'm going to fumble my way through that con that conversation and do poorly. And the client might not be ready to hear that information from me. So I like to start with almost like an MSK bias, because I know that that's going to be information that they're willing to hear, but I can use their uh, increasing trust in me to then take them to that place that their answers on the 50-10 indicate we need to go. So the one thing I hear on a regular basis is that people think this is too MSK focused. And so what I like to remind them is that when the biopsychosocial model came out, what that had us do is consider these three different components, but to also understand that all three components are at play in all people at all times. So there is no such case as a person that has, let's say, chronic pain, and 100% of their answers is in the psychological determinant side. And you can't sit there and say, well, the mind controls the body. Because I'll be that true, the body also controls the mind. So we have to figure out which biological components are going to be at play and going to be useful for us. And then, of course, a lot of my therapy has to do with people reengaging in their social network. So it is, as much as I can, 100% biopsychosocial. However, the client isn't thinking about the psychological component and the sociologic component. They're only thinking about the biologic component. So my therapeutic alliance is to start the conversation in a place that you're comfortable with, and then depending on your answers, see where it takes us. So I can give you an example. So I had a gentleman come in who had a really bad concussion. I got a pair of concussion glasses on him, and he was able to open his eyes for the first time like open his eyes wide. He was immediately relieved. That's purely biologic. Now he, he was, uh, his son was interpreting for us. So through his son, he says to me, I'm able to open my eyes. And I asked him what he does all day. Now in his culture, the man of the house earns income and he's not earning income. That means his stress and his activation is enormously high. And it's been going all on long enough that he's depressed. Um, this man from me doesn't want to hear me talking about depression. But what I did say to him is I said, I gather that you're a religious person because of some of the things that he had said. And he said, very religious. And I said, is it a mosque that you go to? He said, yes. And I said, when's the last time you went to mosque? And he said, not since my accident, which was now nine months ago. And I said, why wouldn't you go to that mosque? And the answer he gave was that he didn't want to burden people, right? So now we're talking about the MSK. But based on my questioning, he's brought us into the social determinants. And I said to him, do you love the people at your mosque? And he said, yes. And I said, do you think those people love you? And he laughed and he said, yes. I said, I think they would be more happy to have you there than to not have you there. I think they miss you. And I think you miss them. And I think that if you can sit here and listen to me babble for 45 minutes, then I'm sure you can go to a place that's of great importance to you and listen to what is being presented to the congregation. And so he went back right away and he said that he was much happier. So again, I start the conversations wherever the client needs that conversation to start. And then we take it 
to where the client's answers dictate we go. So a lot of people would start out on the foundations of function and then immediately move into the pages that will make up the chronic pain book. The individual pages exist. We just haven't put them in a book quite yet. And so that's my answer to the people in kind of the chronic pain world that don't like my focus on MSK. We, we would say in the chronic pain world that when people overfocus on MSK, they have a biomedical bias. Have you heard that term, Tiffany? Yep. What I would also say is that if you're in the pain science and all you ever talk about is pain science, I would call you a neuromaniac. Yeah. Right. And that's not my term. That's out of the literature. This is out of the literature that's evolved from, you know, what is the biopsychosocial model taught us? What lessons are we willing to learn? And what are misapplications of that model? A misapplication of that model is a biomedical bias. A misapplication of that model is being a neuromaniac. So as far as I'm concerned, all people are operating within that biopsychosocial model. And all therapists, in fact, operate within that model. It's one of the things I do with private practice physios is I say, you know, have you ever um, written a person a note to have modified duties at their workplace? And they're like, yes. And I said, you are acting within the social aspect of the biopsychosocial model. You are reaching out and educating people that have a social influence on your client and you are educating them with your medical information so that the client's ability to get back to their goals is better. Congratulations. <laughs> Have you ever said to a person, um, you can do a walk and I'd like you to do some exercise. I'd like you to go out walking your dog, but let's just stay at this certain pace. That sounds very biologic, but we know the psychology of walking your dog, the psychology of being outside, the psychology of being near running water, or the psychology of being around spruce trees of all things. There's actual research articles on all of these things. There's thousands of research articles on the positive implications for your overall health of being outside. So when a physio prescribes, like you can prescribe a and give a person a free pass to a national park as a physical therapist. So when you do that, you might think that's biologic. I think that's psychologic and sociologic. I think that's 100% biopsychosocial. So I, I think too often people uh, retreat into their bio silo and their air quote psychosocial, although it drives me nuts, the terms are always used together. And then they sit there and fight about what the other person doesn't do. And I'm like, but you're both 100% right. <laughs> so let's just talk about the things that unite us rather than talking about the things that divide us. So, I mean, we could say that I would say to a client that what they say to their client can make their pain better or worse. And there's a 2010 article that talk therapy reduces pain. And so I'll point that out to them. Um, as a matter of fact, there's an article from 2009 that swearing reduces pain. I think that's interesting. That's not biologic, is it? Or we would say that placebos actually reduce nociception. That's a paper from 2009. So these are all the things that I talk to what would classify themselves as an MSK physio. And I said, you might have the lion's share of your tools in MSK, but if you believe all of these things that I'm saying, then you're also acting within the psychologic determinants and addressing the sociologic determinants of pain as well. So congratulations, you are biopsychosocial. Sometimes friends or patients of someone else tell me uh, those with chronic pain, uh, their practitioners start to suggest to them that their pain may be impacted by 
negative emotions and anxiety or depression and they said no i am a happy person i don't have anxiety and depression but they seem to always default to that when biology or tests could not explain my pain yeah, you know, that I think, Tiffany, is what comes out in the 5010 sheet. So the 5010 sheet is an opportunity. I get the client to take it home. They try to fill out a couple things. I might add a couple things that they've already said in the assessment. So I might say, you've already said that heat helps your pain. That's great. You've already said that Tylenol helps your pain. That's great. Good for you. And you've also said that some of the functions you want to get back or the th- things missing in your life are this. And then I'll right away say, did you know that Tylenol can reduce emotional pain? That's a 2010 article by DeWall. And they're like, no, I didn't know that. I said, so I said, what that means to us is there's a lot of contributors to our pain and you can be happy or think you're happy and you can be non-anxious or think you're not anxious, but the chemistry that underpins those things can still be at play in your body. And then I'll say, look, what we'll say in a common saying is that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Are you familiar with that saying? And they will say yes. And I'll say what that saying means is that before that final straw was put on, the camel could bear the camel could bear the load. But once that new straw was put on, it was just too much. What camel on earth cannot handle one straw? And the person will go, yeah, that's ridiculous. I'm saying so you can have what we would call subclinical depression, which means your mood is lower and maybe the bio and neurochemicals are starting to elevate, but you haven't met what our clinical practice guideline tells us from a diagnostic point of view, sorry, diagnostic guideline is actual depression. Or I'll say to them, what do you have if your blood pressure is 141 over 91? And they'll either say high blood pressure or they'll say they don't know. And I'll say, what do you have if your blood pressure is three points lower on both. And they're like, high blood pressure? I'm like, no, that actually doesn't meet the diagnostic criteria for high blood pressure. Or if they're talking about metabolism or sugar or whatever, I'll say, if you have an A1C of 6.5, what do you have? Like that's a diabetic marker. Well, what if your A1C is 6.3? That's not a diabetic marker. Now, when I first came out of school, you either had it or you didn't. But now we have things called pre-hypertension, pre-diabetes, pre-spondylosis. Now we're starting to understand that it isn't just a binary, it's a spectrum. And that's why sheet from number four for me has a binary on the baseline, but then makes it into a spectrum because that understanding and teaching tool gets people closer to understanding why things are going on in their body. And when you say things like this to a client, then they'll say, so I, I think I get that. And I'll say to them, like, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not going to tell you you're depressed. I might be able to do an outcome measure. I'll do a PHQ-9 or a GAD-7 or something like that. And if those numbers are high, I will discuss it with the client and decide whether or not the therapy that we're going to do is the right therapy or, or whether or not they need a referral to an OT or a psychologist or a, psych- or a psychiatrist. But if you just open up the opportunity for people to understand these things and you use basic language that they're already familiar with, people understand what diabetes is. People understand what hypertension is. And when you point out to them that two points below the actual clinically relevant standard, you actually don't have it. And they can understand that that's preposterous. And so, yeah, I use all sorts of examples like that, Tiffany, constantly. And I don't always win, right? I don't always get the point across, but then the point patient will go home and they'll think about it. 
And then each one of the sheets in my program has a QR code in the lower left-hand side, which is a five to eight minute video of me teaching that sheet. So when they're away from maybe this um, medical environment that puts them on edge and they're in the safety and the comfort of their own home, they can just use their phone to hit that the QR code and go through the lesson again. And so many people will come back and they'll say, I looked at that video and I think it makes more sense now because they're in an environment where they don't have to be defensive. If you're in a medical environment and someone tells you, you're trying to tell them that your pain is a 13 out of 10. And all that th person says to you is that's not possible. And you're depressed. Well, you're going to be about as activated on the sympathetic nervous system as you could possibly be. So I think that if we just discontinue that type of language and that type of message, and instead of saying, you know, what's possible, what's impossible, we just concentrate instead on trying to have normal body physiology and activity. Activity doesn't just mean exercise. It means engagement in your life, moving you toward your goals. Then we win that biochemical battle and that neurochemical battle um, without even letting the client know that we're waging battle with it. So it's just a paradigm shift. But the paradigm, Tiffany, is Reader's Digest. You can read Macbeth if you want. I didn't do that very well. I had to use Cole's notes, right? It's just, that's just not the type of information presented in a way that's easy for me. And that's okay that I get to use Cole's notes. And if in using the Cole's notes, I was attracted to that story, perhaps it'll make me want to read Macbeth. Although for me, I'll want to watch the movie first. I'll go Cole's notes, then the movie, then I might read Macbeth. And that's the way it is for people in pain. They don't always want to go straight to Macbeth. Sometimes they need a message that is meant for them and starts with terminology that they're willing to accept. Once we get past that, then they can watch the movie. Going back to the higher level goal of this set of educational tools to meet what the patient wants to do, functionally saying, do you find that usually once they start to apply these rules, these understanding, like the 50-10 rule, the panic plan, reset activity plan, that they increase their functional capacity over time? Or, you know, it's Easily 80%. Easily okay. 80%. Obviously, every single practitioner out there has people that we struggle with. So for me, I struggle with people with higher level depression and anxiety. So I use the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7 a lot. And when I get numbers that are higher than I think I can handle, I go straight to my OTs. I ask them if that's the type of client that they are, are going to be able to deal with. And if they say yes, it's referred straight in and we, we co-treat, oftentimes alternating visits per week so we don't overload the client. Or um, like my OTs sell, tell me when there's really robust nightmares, they want that referral to go straight into psychology. So I use these simple outcome measures to help make sure this goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning to make sure that i'm including as a part of the plan things that i don't treat i don't have to treat depression to be able to provide someone a phq9 or a gad7 for anxiety but i know what anxiety sounds like i know what depression sounds like and i'll say it to people in terms of hyper and hypoarousal so hypoarousal is when you feel xyz does that describe the way you feel and if they say yes then we discuss exactly what hypoarousal is and how the medical world would provide resources to help them treat it. So I'd say to them, hey, do you feel disconnected? Do you feel like life's on autopilot? Do you feel that sometimes you're not present? Do you feel like a separation from yourself? Do you feel um, what they call that feigned death response? These are all things on a sheet that I typically use. 
Uh, do you feel that you got a bit of a memory loss or that you're unavailable, that you shut down? And they say, yes. And then I turn around a sheet and I say, you know, this is a sheet that talks about when your body's in fight or flight or rest and digest. And sometimes in fight or flight, it can go really, really high. And sometimes it goes really low. I said, do you remember those really funny videos? Well, those mini little sheep, they're so cute. But when they're scared, they freeze and fall over. That's what we're talking about. These are the same things, all mammals. And in fact, all life on earth has very similar similar bio and neural chemistry. People don't like to hear that, but that's the benefit of my zoology degree. Do you know that crabs in the bottom of the ocean have dopamine? Like, I think that's pretty amazing. Most people don't realize that coral are actually invertebrates. They're not plants. And they have very, very similar neural chemicals that we do. And so there's a, a unifying amount that provides a client comfort when they know that. Because as you know, when people come in, they feel very alone and they feel very helpless. My last little rant, it would be this thing called the hope circuit. And I think that's what I do with my therapeutic alliance. So the hope circuit is something that Marty Seligman came up with in the mid nineties in the movement of positive psychology. And the, the hope circuit is the antidote to learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is when you experience undesirable negative experiences in repetition almost in perpetuity. Instead of constantly fighting a battle you can't win, your body just shuts that down. And they call that when it happens, learned helplessness. It's associated with increasing anxiety, increasing depression, and passivity. Like, doesn't that sound like every chronic pain patient you've ever had? Or a lot of recalcitrant concussions? So that is learned helplessness. And in the psychology literature, the antidote to learned helplessness is the hope circuit, which is a neural circuit in your brain. So we are talking the nervous system, but we're talking about it in a very almost MSK physical way. And the way to access the hope circuit is to elicit some level of control over any part of that symptom and to practice it with enough frequency to create mastery, right? Mastery, this whole kind of X number of thousand hours or whatever. So if I get a person to start doing their dishes, but instead of doing both trays at once, they do only the top tray and they walk away for 20 minutes and it doesn't increase their pain above my green line, which means dull pain, sharp pain, then they get a win. They get dopamine. They're going to have a better sleep maybe, even if it's only fractional, they're going to get more serotonin. And then they're going to come back three hours later and they're going to redo the bottom row. And then they're going to get another dopamine hit. And then the next time that there's dishes to do, because dopamine isn't all, isn't only an achievement chemical, it's also a motivational chemical. They're going to get a dopamine hit just walking toward the dish because they know they're going to accomplish a task. Then they open it up and they do the top row. And again, they don't get too much of an increase in symptoms. They get another dopamine hit. And as you get all of these dopamine hits over time, that flips the hope circuit. And it turns off that negative association between movements and in this case, pain, because we're talking about pain, but it could be fear, or it could be anxiety, or it could be depression. Interesting. Let's say, for example, a client's pain is very biologic arthritis. Okay. With the educational tools you provide in the booklet, how do they impact a very fundamentally biological pain source yeah. eventually that they get to increase their functional capacity over time? So I wouldn't say that a diagnosis of arthritis is inflammatory. I would say a person that has arthritis isn't currently inflamed is inflammatory. But again, so like if we talk about osteoarthritis, 
the neuroorthopedic unit with Butler and Mosley. Um, it was, what's her name? Her name is, she just wrote a book for NOI on osteoarthritis, basically saying that the entire world is doing it wrong, thinking that it's primarily a inflammatory condition. I want to say Stadnik. Anyways, so that Foundations of Function booklet would be perfect for that person. So if you were to give me a function that they can't do, then I would tell you how the sheets can affect it. Are you comfortable giving me an example of what an OA person would complain about? Yep. Uh, can't walk for too long. Can't stand to do the dishes. I can't bend my knee. So then what I would do is I would start filling out the 5010 and I would say, okay, Stephanie, how long can you stand for without significant pain? Five minutes. So let's say five minutes. And then how long can you walk for without significant pain? I, I feel pain as soon as I walk. So right away. And does that pain continue at that level or does it go down for a little while and then go back up or does it start at that level and always ramp up? Yeah, I feel like it ramps up. Okay, so then for now, we're going to be taking walking out of the equation because I want to teach them a battle that we can have a positive impact on because I want their dopamine to reset. So let's say we're talking about standing for five minutes. Um, if they stand for greater than five minutes, it increases their pain and they can't do the dishes. So I would say that you're going to open up the dishwasher pull out the open top drawer and you're going to set an egg timer for two minutes and you're going to put in whatever dishes you can put away from the top drawer until that two minute timer is gone. If it means half the dishes, doesn't matter. You walk away at two minutes. So what they're doing here is uh, Tiffany, they're walking away without a pain flare and they're getting a small dopamine hit. One of my statements is that when you're trying to reset your brain, you want to walk away wanting more because that's a chemical, that's a positive chemical rather than a negative chemical associated with fear, anxiety, and pain. I did the dishes, but then I couldn't move for four hours. Okay. Well, then we're going to be, we're going to get you to do the dishes differently. So if they did this thing with me, they'll come back and they'll, and I'll say, so how did that go, Tiffany? How was doing the dishes? Oh my God, Corey, that was so aggravating. I'm like, well, what was aggravating? I like just getting the dishes done. And it took me four different times to go back and get the dishes done. I found that like they'll use other terms, right? A little bit more colorful. And I'll say to them, how was your pain? Well, it didn't bother my pain, Corey, but it really ticked me off. And I'm like, that's interesting, Tiffany. So in Instagram and the social media world, what they would say is doing the dishes the way you always do them causes you pain. Altering your tactic for doing the dishes can also cause you discomfort. Choose your pain or discomfort. You get to make the choice. I'm not going to make the choice for you. I'm your consultant. I don't demand anything, but I'm going to show you a way that you can do that differently. And if you keep doing it differently that way and you continue to be successful, then our egg timer is going to go up to two and a half minutes or maybe three minutes. I mean, it's a 50-10 rule. We would go up by 10%, but you and I get to break that rule anytime we want. That just prevents us from being silly and saying, if I put away six glasses, it doesn't hurt. So now I'm going to unload the whole dishwasher. I mean, these are the tenets of pacing and grading. And so I'm going to pick any one of those functions that they wrote on the left side of the 5010, and I'm going to try to distill which one I think I can have an immediate positive impact on, even if they come back and say, I found it irritable, but not painful. And I said, which is your choice? If you choose to be painful instead of irritable, then put all the dishes away and then sit down and throw on your hot pack. That's okay. But if you choose to be a little bit irritable, without pain, maybe you can get used to something 
like that. And as you get used to it, your body will stop throwing up that alarm to the sympathetic side, increasing the amount of inflammatory chemicals, increasing your ability to feel pain because it's no longer associated with pain. And then you will find that that zone of less discomfort will start to widen throughout more and more of your activities of your day. Well, what are we going to do about walking, Corey? Oh, we're going to get to walking, but it won't be today. Maybe today what we get to with walking is putting tennis balls on your walker to make it easier to use it inside the house or something like that, right? Everything has to be done in due time. And that's why I state that the functions on that 50-10 sheet, they'll put them maybe randomly, but then we will organize them almost like a fear hierarchy is done within OT and psych. So it would be a hierarchy of things from the bottom is the greatest or easiest capacity to flare your symptoms all the way to the top, which is the lightest or the less likely to flare your symptoms. And then we start at the top. Practically speaking, in a private practice context where you are at, how much time do you spend doing the talking and the education part? And how much time do you spend <laughs> doing like traditional, what people think about physiotherapy is? So, um, so I book one hour for assessments and 30 minutes for treatment. I think that I almost never do traditional therapy. I think that my goal is talk therapy. And I think that uh, like when I need the person to transition into a greater activity plan, then I use the other therapists that are in my uh, location that are better at it than I am. So I do take people into the gym, although I'm not even 100% sure if I can turn a TENS machine on and use it anymore because it's been a decade since I've done it. I used an ultrasound because one of my past patients came in with some inflammation, but I was really worried about whether or not I would know how to turn it on. So I think outside of utilizing a dry needling technique, I am not sure I do anything typical in physio. And But I don't think that you have to do it the way I do it to have success in this group. I think that I'm going to highlight that these different techniques are impactful because if they weren't, I wouldn't be so bloody busy and I wouldn't have such a long waiting list. But, but again, the same way I would refer out to OT, if their depression was high or anxiety was high, I refer out to my really knowledgeable physios for certain corrective exercises. We share a lot of clients in our place. We do, we do a lot of client sharing because I think we're better as a team than we are as an individual. How much of your patients do you refer them for corrective exercises or just exercises? Um, so let's say probably approximately 50%. Because again, I do some corrective exercise, but like I, I don't do short neck flexors. <laughs> I, I don't, I can't remember the last time I taught a pelvic tilt. I approach those same movements in the activity planner that I have. So in the way I ask them to stand against the wall, I'm trying to get them to engage their short neck flexors. I'm trying to get them to do a pelvic tilt, but I'm only asking them to do a 10% augmentation of their existing posture. Because at 10%, this is the second half of the 50-10 rule, at 10% of a change, they're going to have the strength and endurance to do that quite a bit of the times during their day. Whereas if I mandate that they go right from the posture they have to the posture they must have or should have, number one, I don't even think that's true, but they're going to fatigue too quickly and stop doing it. You know, um, Maybe a better question is how many patients come out of my cubicle without exercises to do? And I think the answer to that is zero. But for me, this is going to become a bit redundant in this conversation. My choice of exercise is the function that that client is motivated to return to. 
because then you need motivation to get them to exercise. A lot of physios tell me my client suggested their pain was a 15 out of 10 and they don't do my exercise. What would you do about that? And I said, number one, I would stop using that pain scale. It's not effective. And number two, I would stop using exercises they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. So if you tell them to adjust their position in their car and you get them to push lightly with their external occipital protuberance um, at a stoplight into the cushion at the back of their car, what muscle are they working on? It's a short neck flexor exercise. But what they're doing is being able to drive because they've got stuff to do. And when they're at a red light, they got nothing else to do anyway. So if they concentrate on that single exercise, they're accomplishing the exercise. And then the third thing that I would say is what, you know what they're not doing, Tiffany, when they're thinking about their exercise, and that's ruminating about the accident that they had. So again, back to, we all practice biopsychosocial. I just want more people to practice more of the psychological and sociologic parts if they're too MSK and more of the bio accepting it if they're a little bit too psychosocial, if we have to use those terms together. Mm. I'm a bridge builder, Tiffany. That's what I do. I build bridges. (laughs) Wonderful. I'm sure audience will have more questions about this. I'm very intrigued and I can continue on and on with questions. I've learned a lot from the conversation. Thank you, Corey. How can people learn more about your work or follow you? You know, we have a website for Pain Made Easy. There's just painmadeeasy.com. And the three words are used for our Facebook and our Instagram accounts. So Instagram, I'm more active in. The Instagram account's more for therapists than it is for clients at, at this time. And if people go to the website, the painmadeeasy.com, it'll show you the 10 educational modules. And we have the information presented for module one, which is the DVPRS. That's free because that content is not mine. And the way that information is provided online is each one of the modules has a video of me telling the therapist kind of kind of the backdrop of why this is an important lesson on one video. And then there's a second video of me teaching that information. So mm-hmm. people go through module one at no cost. Any concluding thoughts before we end this episode? No, except for congratulations, because I think these are great conversations. I think it's really good for us to talk about these things. The way I look at it is if we don't talk about it, then we're almost pretending or suggesting that we know the answer. And clearly in the realm of persistent symptoms, we do not know the answer. Or if we do know the answer, we don't know how to get it to the masses because we haven't done that. We're still knee deep in the middle of an opioid crisis that we've been in for now several decades. And I don't see any meaningful exit from that. And I think that there's a meaningful exit by pointing out to a person that's your age, that by the time their heart rate gets to around 119, your body's producing endogenous cannabinoids. You're welcome. (laughs) You don't have to buy them, vape them or smoke them. They're made specifically for you by you using your genetic code. So yeah, my ending thoughts are, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to do this. And I look forward to seeing what kind of topics we can get together and hash through. Um, Maybe one of the next podcasts we'll do is we'll get three of us in here. And you can bring up a topic and we'll just sit there and, you know, debate or argue or laugh or cry. We'll just talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Corey. Sounds like a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Paincast on pain education. I hope you learned a lot. Please support our podcast by subscribing and rating it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean and share it with your network. Stay tuned for future episodes on pain and physiotherapy.
Yeah.